Good morning. My name is Emily, and I want to welcome you to worship here at Calvary this morning. You are welcome in this place. If you are visiting with us, we are so glad that you are here, and we would love to get to know you better. Calvary is a place to know and to be known, and one initial way that we can do that is filling out a welcome card. These cards are located in the pew in front of you. If you wouldn't mind filling that out and placing it in the offering plate towards the end of the service, we would love to reach out to you later this week. We're so glad you're here, and we hope to have the opportunity to get to know you better. Today, as we worship, we will be invited into reflection on Christ's table, the gathered community, and the call that we have as resurrected Easter people to share the table. As we come together now to worship God and to be fed by God, I want to share with you a quote from James Cone, prophetic witness and theologian who passed away yesterday morning. In his book, God of the Oppressed, Cone writes, the crucified one is also the risen Lord. Faith in the resurrection means that Jesus, in his liberating words and deeds for the poor, was God's way of breaking into human history, redeeming humanity from injustice and violence, and bestowing power upon little ones in their struggle for freedom. Let's worship the risen Lord. Oh. 
May we pray together. O Lord, on this another post-Easter Sunday, may we, like Mary, Peter, and John did so long ago, make our own pilgrimage to find your tomb empty. May the same power that rolled the stone away from its entrance empower us to be about your purposes. May the same light that flooded that dark space shine on and from us as we seek to make a difference in this dark world. May the same hallelujahs and hosannas that overcame your tomb's eerie silence be sung today from our own lips with freedom and joy. And may we, like you, leave this place resurrected. Easter people expanding your kingdom by sharing the story of the difference you have made in each of our own lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, whose resurrection makes all of this possible, amen. Oh, hell, where is your 
How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. A reading from the book of Acts of the Apostles. Now when the crowd heard Peter's proclamation, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
student at Truett, I've truly grown to love Waco, my church home, and some of the new friends that I've had to make in this chapter of my life. Though there are a lot of exciting things that I've had the privilege to be involved in, one of the things that I've really grown to love and find joy in takes place at 4.50 p.m. outside of a Starbucks every Tuesday afternoon, consisting of myself, Emmett Drumgool, Evan Fleming, and two other Truett professors. We all take time out of our week to not only discuss our findings in a Willie Jennings book, but to also use our time to share our findings from the book and how they've prompted us to consider certain stories, instances, and maybe even blind spots that we might not have considered otherwise. In the exchanging of such, we've not only shared our tears, but also our worldviews that have given us a greater capacity to empathize with one another as we navigate through issues of racial injustice. And as we continue to meet, God continues to amaze me as I open myself up to the possibility of familiarizing myself with the unfamiliar each week at a Starbucks table outside of Moody Library. Though it may seem mundane to some that are passing by, I found that table reminiscent of the table that we gather around when we share in the breaking of the body and blood of Christ at Calvary. Though the reading group only consists of us exchanging words, findings, and personal experiences, I'm reminded of Jesus' words when he says, for where there are two or three gathered in my name, I am there among them. And they've helped serve as a constant reminder that the presence and truth of God are most easy to discern when we remember those situated beside us as the communion of saints. In this place, no light is streaming. Now is the darkness vanished away. See, in this space, our fears and our dreamings brought here to you in the light of this day. Gather us in the lost and forsaken. Gather us in the blind and the lame. Call to us now and we shall awaken 
we shall arise at the sound of our name. We are the young, our lives are a mystery. We are the old who yearn for your face. We have been sung throughout all of history, called to be light to the whole human race. Gather us in the rich and the haughty, gather us in the proud and the strong. Give us a heart so meek and so lowly, give us the courage to enter the song. Here we will take the wine and the water, here we will take the bread of new birth. Here you shall call your sons and your daughters, call us anew to be salt for the earth. Give us to drink the wine of compassion, give us to eat the bread that is you. Nourish us well and teach us to fashion lives that are holy and hearts that are true. Not in the dark of buildings confining, not in some heaven light years away. But here in this place the light is shining, now is the kingdom, now is the day. Gather us in and hold us forever, gather us in and make us your own. Gather us in, all peoples together, fire of love in our flesh and our bones. Gracious God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer, and we celebrate your resurrection every day. Amen. In staff meeting this past Wednesday, we all read together the day's Easter devotion, and it just happened to revolve around the same verses and acts that we heard read a few minutes ago. Tyler Davis wrote the devotion and spoke about his experiences of sharing and being shared with, specifically through the glad and generous sharing of meals. The reflection questions the staff pondered together were, has God ever provided for you in a moment of real need? Or have you ever been called by God to provide for another who is in need? As we made our way around the table, Stories filled with this deep gratitude poured forth. One thing I noticed were that the examples and the stories we were telling of when someone had provided for us all seemed relatively small in the grand scheme of things. They were offerings and actions like being invited over for a meal, someone helping you change your tire, a supportive community, fronting money for a car repair, or someone simply just lending a listening ear. Another thing I noticed while we were sharing was that almost all of us got emotional talking about what had been done for us. These moments of sharing skills, food, care, and resources 
although they were small, left a big impact for those of us who were receiving. Interesting, isn't it? In a world of exorbitant gestures of love and camaraderie, the small and mundane are those which leave us welling up with tears. When I got home on Wednesday night after church, my mind was reeling thinking about the ways we had all answered the questions. I began to remember a book that my parents had kept in our little bathroom in the small bungalow we lived in for the first half of my life. That book was titled Kids' Random Acts of Kindness. Some of you might have heard of it. I'm really not sure why it was always in our bathroom, but it was. <laughs> I hopped on Amazon and downloaded the Kindle version. The premise of this book is that children were asked to write about an unsolicited act of kindness that they had experienced or that they had created. So one of the best features of this book is that the kids' writings are totally unedited and they are actually included in the book in the child's handwriting. So here are some of the random acts of kindness. I give cookies and other foods to friends during lunch if they're having a bad day. Carl, fifth grade. One day my family and I were going to a baseball game and it was pretty cold out. In the city, there's a lot of people who don't have homes. We saw this one guy with some dogs and you could see their ribs. He was selling bracelets for 25 cents. We bought a few and gave him $20. I wish nobody lived on the streets. Dawn, seventh grade. My brother made a leaf pile and he let me jump in. Brad, first grade. Random acts of kindness, no matter how small, make a difference. For instance, in school, if I hold the door for someone who has a popped binder or say to someone, especially if that person is teased, that they look nice or I like their hair or something that they wore, it could make their day. That to me would be better than having a day full of terrible things. Marnie, fourth grade. So those who worked to create this book included these words on the last few pages. The publication of Random Acts of Kindness triggered an extraordinary groundswell across the country. It seemed that in the midst of what often appeared to be a growing swirl of indifference throughout society, we are all quietly longing for a world in which kindness can and does play a more vital role. Of the tens of thousands fascinating responses we received, none was more powerfully moving than the outpouring of efforts from children. We were delighted by their straightforward, shoot-from-the-hip, no-nonsense approach. We were moved by the depth of feeling, the passion, and the urgency that emerged so clearly from their stories. Almost as if they sensed somehow that we are entering a time in which a return to kindness and a connection to community is no longer a luxury, but a necessity if we are to survive the span of their lifetimes. In short, the letters we received sounded suspiciously like the opening salvos in a children's crusade of the 1990s. Stirring, beautiful, committed, and powerful. I would argue that the series we've been walking through together about living as Easter people is all about being stirring, beautiful, committed, and powerful in our dedication to the risen Lord. We can celebrate and renew commitments because Christ is risen. How amazing it would be to, be to feel this empowered all day, every day, and to see kindness as a simple act and one that is absolutely necessary to the well-being of this world. But as we heard from our scripture today in Acts 2, verse 37, the Holy Spirit had just come down. And in response to all those wondering what could possibly be going on, Peter preaches. 
as he urges those listening to confess that Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, was the one who was crucified. People from the crowd yelled out to Peter and the other apostles. They said, what do we do now? Peter answers and he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. So these were instructions that came directly from Peter. But I think Luke also gives us some instructions of his own in verses 44 through 47. He tells us that all who believed were together and had all things in common. That they would sell their possessions and their goods and distribute all the proceeds around them to those who had need. They spent lots of time together, including in the temple, and broke bread together at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. Because the people believed in our risen Lord, the Holy Spirit produced koinonia, common life or fellowship, among them. Some have even wondered if the real miracle of Pentecost is to be found here, that from a ragtag group of people from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and socioeconomic groups, a unified body of believers is formed. Christ is risen. Because Christ arose and we believe, we're now charged to not only seek this fellowship and this community, but to participate in the Holy Spirit's creation of community. Although we know we're called to this, called to fellowship with one another and be in community, I think we often find ourselves asking the exact same questions that the people in the crowd asked Peter that day. So what do we do now? As I read this passage over and over this week, I learned, or I relearned for Dr. Weaver, who was one of my seminary professors, that summary statements in Acts were a way to tie together two literary units. In this case, the summary about life for the believers was tying together Peter's speech in front of the crowd in chapter two, and then Peter's journey to the temple and the speech in front of the temple in chapter three. Willimon, who's a professor at Duke, says that these summary verses serve a greater purpose than just tying two things together. They focus our attention on the main concern of Acts, the community. In Acts, individual personalities have their place in the story, particularly Peter and Paul, but are they the purpose of the story? The protagonist of Acts is the Holy Spirit, enlivening and driving the young church. The summary of the activity of the church focuses our attention away from preoccupation with individuals' acts towards the true concern of the story, the community. I began to wonder if our lives also needed to be refocused from preoccupation with ourselves to the true concern of our stories and our life, our community. Admittedly, when I read how tight-knit the believers were in verses 44 through 47, I'm intimidated. I'm intimidated because this kind of life requires serious self-sacrifice. And it's not easy to share with any and all who have need because that's a lot of people. And as I sat and wondered how all this is possible, I remember that sometimes in elementary school, in Sunday school, when we read these verses, we're told that it's not possible to live like that anymore. Or this is so that we can learn about the first Christians and how they lived. But y'all, I think that it is possible in a way. And I think that it is possible and worthy of our time because Christ is risen. Earlier this week, I posted on Facebook and asked, when you think about meaningful community in film or literature, what comes to mind? 
and I asked if anyone could recall an example of a community where differing opinions didn't disrupt the sacred bond of the group. So all the responses I received were great, and I even have a new top 10 movie for my personal movie list. But one particular comment pushed me to do some research. So here I went down the Parks and Rec rabbit hole. <laughs> there is one episode of Parks and Rec I think exemplifies the nitty grittiness of community quite perfectly. And if you've never watched the show Parks and Rec, buckle up. I'm going to try and explain this scene well and in detail so you still know what I'm talking about. So Leslie Nope, who's the deputy director of the Parks Department in pa Parks and Recreation Department in Pawnee, Indiana, is organizing the making of a time capsule. And this is meant to be opened 50 years in the future, and it's supposed to be filled with items that encapsulate the spirit of Pawnee. So a citizen comes to Leslie's office and makes a passionate plea for the Twilight books to be included. And so when Leslie refuses because the books have no connection to Pawnee, the man handcuffs himself to a pipe in her office until she reconsiders. He's able to stay several days because he brought a pillow and food and water. But during the time that the man is stationed in her office, Leslie notices the name Liz Waverly inside one of the covers of the Twilight books. He admits that she is his 12-year-old daughter, that he's divorced from her mother, and wants to put Twilight in the time capsule to impress her. So now Leslie obviously wants to include Twilight in the time capsule. But Ben, who's Leslie's co-worker, says that if she makes one exception, everyone will want their own item in the time capsule. Leslie decides to hold a public forum so all citizens can make suggestions for capsule items. The meeting descends almost immediately into chaos when participants argue over what to include. They start making crazy suggestions like a cat that had died, whose name was Turnip, the book Crazy from the Heat, a David Lee Roth story, paintings of pets, sports trophies, and just about any random object you might imagine was up for debate. So an activist who calls Pawnee home argues that Twilight should not be included because it has anti-Christian undertones, while a civil liberties organization member says that the book isn't suitable because it's pro-Christian. <laughs> Leslie tries to compromise by making multiple time capsules, and even at one point, there's like eight. There's eight, eight running lists of time capsules. But she ultimately decides to stick to one capsule and include nothing except the videotape recording of the meeting. She says that this represents Pawnee because it shows a lot of people with a lot of opinions arguing passionately for what they believed in. Ben, who was working a temporary job in Pawnee, said, I gotta say, I think it's kind of impressive. I've been to a lot of towns, but usually a lot of people don't care about anything. These people are weirdos, but they're weirdos who care. God calls us to live together, to live in community and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones that we agree with, the ones we don't agree with, the ones that we've had to forgive, the ones we've had to ask for forgiveness from. And we might be a group of weirdos, but I think we're just like those people in Pawnee. A lot of people with a lot of opinions, but dedicated to the one thing we all believe in, the risen Lord. I imagine if we tried to create a time capsule about Waco, we'd also be better off recording the meeting and submitting that. But this Acts passage, acknowledging the Holy Spirit's power to form community, isn't complicated to understand, but it's complicated to apply. 
It can be hard to take something in and reflect on it when we're left believing that our Bible demands something of us that either isn't attainable or doesn't seem attainable. So I'm about to be very honest with you because often my well-intentioned ideas of building community turn into who's who of all the people that I like the most. All the people I'm comfortable with, the people I want to hang out with day to day. I'm guilty of doing the very thing Dietrich Bonhoeffer warns about. I've dreamed so long and so hard about the kind of community I want to be a part of that I've forgotten to simply look around. Differences don't equate to hate. In fact, I think differences equate to the kingdom of God. The charge to go and be and do and share with one another seems simple, but maybe us sharing our lives and our tables with new and old friends alike is exactly the kind of miracle Jesus would have wanted for us in these days of being Easter people. I want to leave us with a quick word from Madeline Langle, the revered author of A Wrinkle in Time and the Time series. In her book, and it was good, Reflections on Beginnings, she shares. We live in a world which has become too complex to unravel. There's nothing we can do about it, we little people who don't have big government jobs or positions of importance. But I believe that the kingdom is built on the little things that all of us do. I remember my grandmother was fond of reciting, little drops of water, little grains of sand, make the mighty ocean and the pleasant land. A single drop can't even make a puddle, but together all our little drops in God's planning can make not only a mighty ocean, but a mighty difference. God, we confess that we underestimate our power to do good things in this world. We confine ourselves to those we know well, and in doing so, inadvertently miss some wonderful opportunities you might have placed in our lives. Help us to stretch ourselves. Help us to be like those in Acts who saw no need among their community. We trust that with your help, we can and will grow to share our table more and more, and in doing so, live as Easter people and proclaim the glory and goodness of the risen Lord. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you've heard the good news that Jesus defeated death and was raised to new life. And all that we might not only have life, but have it abundantly and as a community and fellowship together. Maybe you're ready to become an Easter person too, and there's no better time to do so than today. Or maybe you want to join our community of faith here at Calvary, where we seek to know and follow Jesus together, living as Easter people the best ways we know how. We would love to welcome you into our church family today. However God is leading you to respond, our ministers will be in the back ready to receive you and pray with you as we continue in worship. The bride of Christ. 
I wanted to share today a family portrait with you. This is a portrait that I like among the most of all of my uh, family portraits. This is of, an ex of my extended family. Some of you know that I'm from a very large family and that my mother had 17 uh, siblings. My mother at age 82 still has four sisters and two brothers. And this is a photo that um, surfaced in our family about 10 or 12 years ago when one of my aunts died and uh, my mother and her sisters were going through her things. They found this photo and no one knew that it was there. So they immediately, um, in my presence, I got to be a part of this, they were trying to figure out, now when could this photo have been made? So they started looking for all the clues here and they noticed uh, immediately who was how old, who was here and who was missing. For instance, I'm this little boy right here, but my younger brother, who's four years younger than I, is not in the photo. Clue, all right. Um, they also noticed, my mother noticed immediately, she's way back in the back with hardly visible, and she noticed that her hair is rolled, and so she said it had to be on a Saturday afternoon if my hair is rolled. <laughs> And then she said, I'm standing in the back because I was pregnant at that time. And in those days, pregnant women didn't get their photos made. So I'm kind of in the background. You notice there's a big table here. It's actually two tables put together, two kind of piecemeal tables. One of them has a cloth on it, one of them doesn't. You'll see several loaves of bread. They're marked well with 25 cents on them two or three quarts of mayonnaise, which means it's in the summertime and there were tomato sandwiches being served. There's several uh, big pots of, uh, big dishpans of fried chicken. There's some pots of various things. It's also interesting, as we're talking about family today, to note that in this photo, it's not just family. There's a bunch of neighbors in this photo also. 
So it wasn't just a closed table. I've come to the conclusion that you learn a lot about people by observing what kind of table they have. My grandmother, who's in this photo, had a table that's the largest table I've ever seen in any one kitchen, as you might imagine. It's a table built especially, uh, my grandfather had this table built for their kitchen, and it had uh, a bench, a long bench on either side. It has a bench so that you can crowd more people. You can just keep piling people around and crowd them around. Sort of in that same tradition, when I was a high school student, I built a table for my parents. And it also is a very long table, a table that we would pro will probably inherit someday, but I have no idea where we should put such a large table. And it has a bench on either side. So you can put a lot of people around it. In 1986, Brenda and I uh, had finally had a little bit larger apartment, and we decided that it was time for us to get a real table. So we went shopping for a table. We found one in an antique shop in um, Fort Worth, and we tried to find the table that would compact the most and also grow the greatest. So we found a table that will accommodate 12 people if you crowd around it. And this week, we will have 13 people around the 12-person table because we believe that it's more important to all to be at the same table. So it makes me question, what about this table? This table today has a cloth on it, kind of like the one that you see in this photo, something from the 1960s. But how big is this table? Is this table really only about four feet long, or does this table stretch on and on and on? Is it a large enough table that all of us can gather around it? Is it large enough that all of our friends and all of those who want to participate can, grab, can also gather around it? I think so. Today, in the scripture that you've heard and the sermon that Ali preached, We've talked about gathering around the table and Christ being present there. It seems to me that if you look at Scripture carefully, that Christ is drawn to the smell of food. The Holy Spirit seems to always show up where there's food. I think it's the same Holy Spirit that shows up on Wednesday nights when we go and sit around tables and sit with someone that we may not know as well as we wish we did. It's the same spirit that is around this table today, and it's the same Christ presence who will one day gather all of us, not just us, but people from all times and all places into the wonderful experience of the greatest meal of all times, the meal that Christ will host himself. Today, as we come to this table, I encourage you and me to think how large is our table how open is the table that we, that we preside over? How open is the table of the people that we take to lunch? How open is the table that we offer symbolically when we offer ourselves to others? How generous are we at sharing the food that is us? How generous are we and how generous shall we be today? And my last question is how great is your expectation as you come to this table? Do you really believe that Christ is here, that Christ has opened himself up to us? Today, obviously, you don't need to be a member of this congregation to come to this large table that we have talked about. If you have professed your faith in Christ, you are welcome here. There will be three locations at the front for you to come, and there will be a gluten-free station in the back, and you're welcome there. As is our tradition, we will be dipping the bread into the cup, 
Children, if you've not made a profession of faith, then there will be someone right here to gather and offer you um, a blessing uh, on this day. If you're not able to stand or not able to come to the front, please raise your hand and someone will come and bring communion to you. So today, as we come to this table to know Christ in this meal, to remember again how Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup and the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, let us now come to the table. Amen. Calvary, I am so excited to introduce you to someone. You may already know him. His name is Josiah Tate. I'm going to invite his entire family to join us up here. He is the son of David and Lydia Tate. He is a fourth grader at Mountain View. He loves to read, watch TV, socialize, and be with friends. He is also a compassionate person, and he is curious. He asks the best questions as he continues to learn about faith and the Bible. Josiah is coming today to be baptized. We are so excited about your decision, Josiah, and we just celebrate with you. Calvary, I am also excited for you to meet, if you haven't already, Janice Gortson. Uh, Janice is passionate and involved in many different things here in our Waco community. She is a costume designer and has designed lots of the costumes for shows at Waco Civic Theater over the past few years. I also, if you had the chance to see the What Were You Wearing Waco exhibit that has been touring around town and Baylor's campus, Janice was actually the co-creator of that exhibit, which I think is incredible. Uh, she's on the board of directors at the Family Abuse Center, and when I asked her what she is passionate about, she's passionate about domestic violence advocacy due to being a survivor of more than two decades of abuse. Um, Janice is 
honored to get to share her story with us and to journey with us at Calvary. And she will also be starting at Truett Seminary in the fall. So we are so grateful to welcome both of these people into our family of faith. And we have some words that we would like to share with you all today. In response to your decision. and our hopes. We hope to learn from you, give to you, and receive from you by God's grace. I'll invite you all to have a seat for just a moment and then to walk out with me during the benediction. And I know many of you would like to greet them afterwards. Also, I didn't mention um, Janice's children are also in the back. Would you all just wave your hands up so we can see you? We've got Charity, who's eight. Zach, who's 11, and Ethan, who's 14, and we are so glad that y'all are here, and we are glad to get to know you better, too. Well, I'm sure you've heard of by now, and you've seen the yellow cards and the advertisements about Journey On, Calvary's campaign to finish paying off our remaining renovation expenses, which started off at... um, over $2 million 12 years ago, and now we have been down to $79,000. And paying this off will allow us as Calvary to journey on in lots of incredible ways as we dream God-sized dreams for our future. And so we are inviting and asking everyone to consider how you can be part of this congregational effort. The yellow cards that are in your pews, if you haven't had a chance to look at those, we invite you to look at those today and to turn them in to Phil Sitton or to to take them home with you and turn them in later this week. But I do have some exciting news about how we are starting off of this campaign. Uh, Currently, we have already received pledges for $41,500, which is over half the amount we need. Yeah. We started this campaign two weeks ago, and we have already received $17,500. So we are very excited about all that is happening here. Thank you for your generosity and your faithfulness and for asking how God might use you to be part of this. Uh, Just wanting people to know that this week is the last night of our regularly scheduled Wednesday night activities. It's the last week of dinner and our different programming events. And we are so grateful to the leaders, volunteers, teachers who have invested in this time together each week. The Intergenerational Choir will continue to meet through the month of May. And then they will take a break as well for the summer. Also, as is our tradition, when we take up the Lord's Supper, we also receive the Samaritan's Fund on these Sundays. And this is a fund that goes toward emergent needs in our congregation right here and in our surrounding community. Um, Know that it is used often and it is used well. So thank you for giving to this. Next Sunday, we will be recognizing our higher education graduates at the beginning of worship. I know there's a lot of you out there, and so we hope you'll be here at the beginning of worship to share with us about that. And also, as you're thinking about next Sunday and your route to church, I just wanted to remind everyone that next Sunday is the Silo District Marathon, and a lot of streets around town are going to be closed. And so this may affect some people's routes to church. So I just wanted to put that on everyone's radar to Google that map and to see if your normal route to church is blocked. I think there's a way to church, but I think it might be a little complicated for some people. And so we just, I just wanted to put that on our radars now. 
So what a great day of worship. Thank you, Allie, to preaching with us today. Thank you all for being here. Let's stand and receive this benediction. Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment. And comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's love astound you. And may the Spirit abound in you so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with you always. Amen.